Welcome to the Midnight Myth Time Machine. We have been publishing our back catalog week by week to make it available on your favorite podcast platforms, and this is the last one. One last trip on the time machine. I, for one, am a little bit glad, because as fun as it is to go back through our older episodes, we can really hear how much our work has improved. Uh, We hope you've enjoyed this. If you are interested in more bonus content from us, you can always sign up for our Patreon, where we'll do a bonus episode for people who support us at $5 or more a month. But we're also kicking around ways to do more bonus content for you in the future. So if there's anything you want to hear, please, please, please let us know. What you're about to hear is episode 20, Dark and Full of Terrors, which originally aired in June of 2017. This was our very first Game of Thrones character study, a tradition we've continued ever since, and it's the one and only Stannis Baratheon. So, hop in the time machine with us one last time and enjoy episode 20, Dark and Full of Terrors. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. I was thinking about changing our intro music. Were you? Yeah. That's interesting. Um, what's your, you had, like, do you want to share or? Yeah. I, uh, you know, I had this tune sort of come to me and I was like, wow, you know, I never really heard that anywhere before. And I was like, maybe, maybe we should try and record that for our podcast. And uh, it sort of came to me in a dream and it was like, dun, 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 dun. Right? Wait a hold on. Did you have the same dream? Yeah, I think I think we had the same dream. Well, we definitely have the same dreams. I also have a feeling if that were our intro. We would probably get sued. Oh no! Yeah, I think Is it we would like get a sued. CBS thing. Um, no, I think it's a Disney thing. You're probably right about that. Yeah, I think it's a Disney thing, and I think no, no, it's not a Disney thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The jig is up. We're being cheeky. Uh huh. Welcome to the Midnight Myth. We're bringing you a Game of Thrones podcast. A very special uh, Midnight Myth episode. This is episode 20. Huge milestone. We've been publishing the podcast for 20 weeks now. It's awesome. We are a little more than a month away from Game of Thrones season six. And we figured it was high time that we talked about, in my not so humble opinion, the undisputed master of television and one of my favorite book series of all time. Game of Thrones, based off of George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. Nice. So, I, uh, we, you know, when you approach a subject like Game of Thrones, it's a pop culture phenomenon. There's so much out there already. 
you kind of have to ask yourself this late in the game, how does the midnight myth have a voice in the Herculean effort it is to talk about this show from a critical analysis point of view? Right. Um, so some things that we decided, a, I've read the book series. Laurel is it's still on her to-do list. So we're not going to talk about the books. Right. We're just going to talk about the show. We're throwing up the spoiler warning now. Yes. It is It is not advisable that you listen to this episode if you uh, have not seen at least through season five, if not all of Game of Thrones. Yeah. I'm just going to say our plan is to talk through season five. Season seven is the one that's about to start, but we might dabble into season six. So uh, if, if Game of Thrones is on your to-do list, uh, pause now, come back to us after you have caught up on Game of Thrones. Uh, otherwise, and after you, you've finished crying over all of your favorite characters. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. Um, spoiler warning out there. If you are listening in three, two, one, we're now free to spoil the fuck out of it. All right. So here's our thought process. This is what we're going to do. We're going to do a character case study. Yes. And we are going to pick um, my absolute favorite character from the series. All time greatest piece of shit in Game of Thrones. Uh, not even close. Like a real big piece of shit. Not even close. We're going to talk about Stannis Baratheon. So here's how it's going to go. We're going to give a brief sort of synopsis in history, who Stannis Baratheon is. A uh, piece of shit. Yeah. Where he is in the story and uh, how he got there. Then we're going to jump into analysis and then uh, play a game. That's pretty much the basic of it. And uh, we'd love to hear from you guys on what you think. Yeah. Do you want me to start with the history synopsis? Yeah, I would love for you to talk a little more Stannis because you have uh, you, you know some more um, admiration for that character and a little deeper knowledge of his background. So yeah, please. Sure. Westeros is a medieval style society in which there's a king who maintains alliances with land-holding lords in which there are seven main kingdoms. One of those kingdoms is called the Stormlands, named so because their castle was supposed to be built to withstand the storms of the angriest gods. That house that runs the Stormlands is House Baratheon. Now, our story of Game of Thrones starts when Robert of House Baratheon leads a rebellion against the Targaryens, who are the kings, the house that rules the Seven Kingdoms, and becomes king. Robert has two younger brothers, Stannis, who is immediately his younger, and then Renly, who is the youngest. Stannis enters the series in season two. Stannis has fallen, I would say, under the thumb influence and direction of a priestess of Rolor, the Lord of Light from the land of Ashante, uh, a realm outside of Westeros as we know it. Um, and she has convinced him that there is a prophecy that the man from the land of dragons or a person from the land of dragons will stop a thing called the Long Night. Uh, Stannis's keep that he runs is called Dragonstone, and Stannis has a claim to the Iron Throne when Robert dies and it's discovered that his son Joffrey Baratheon is actually a bastard of Cersei, Robert's wife, and of incest with her brother. Ooh, gross. So Stannis has a long side with him. He has uh, his daughter Shireen, who is suffering from a disease called grayscale, kind of like the Westeros uh, leprosy, if you will. Right. He has his trusted commander and hand of the king, Sir Davos. Um, Probably my favorite living character on Game of Thrones. He has Melisandre. And uh, so Stannis goes through a bunch of trials and tribulations. Melisandre gives birth to an evil shadow demon, assassinates Renly, who's Stannis' younger brother, who's also claimant for the throne. He has a failure of a battle at Blackwater where he tries to take King's Landing by force, loses a lot of troops, recoups back at Dragonstone, doesn't really know what to do, goes to uh, across the Narrow Sea to the land of, uh, I want to say Volantis, but it's not Volantis. He goes to uh, Bravos, borrows a shit ton of money, buys a whole bunch of cell swords. Then he goes to the wall and there he helps defend the wall from a wildling attack uh, based upon intelligence that he gets that the wall, um, you know, is sending for recruitments because they know the wildlings are attacking it. He makes the decision to go there. 
Then he decides he's going to march south to take Winterfell, who is now in the hands of the Boltons. He gets trapped in snow. He burns his daughter alive to melt the snow under the advice of his, um, you know, Melisandre. The snow melts. Um, the troops desert him. Melisandre deserts him. His wife hangs himself. He marches on Winterfell with no troops, no money, no anything. He gets slaughtered. Then Brienne of Tarth, another character in the show who is the King's Guard of Renly Baratheon. Remember him from the early of this synopsis. You really need a fucking flowchart to understand all this, but I'm going quickly because I don't want to be bogged down in the details in which she then sentences him to death using a sword, chops his head off, slices him in two. We don't really see. And that's the end of Stannis. Do you want some water? Hell yeah. That was, uh, that was pretty impressive. I'm really glad you're here because I don't remember most of that shit. Yeah, I'm... Just slightly obsessed with Game of Thrones. Just a little bit. Here, Just slightly. Drink some water. I had wine. Okay, great. Wine and water are the same thing. According to some. Yeah. Some According to me. Jesus. Yeah. Um, yeah, well done. So that's that's Stannis, and that is his brief and uh, gross piece of shit history on Earth. You've said that three times now. Would you like to make your piece of shit argument? We will get we will get there. Okay. No, I mean it's as, just you seem to keep going as back to it. As the night unfolds, my disdain as, for Stannis will become very clear. As the night is dark and full of terror. Yes. Uh and I don't think I'm alone in that analysis of him. But just because I say he's my favorite character does not mean that I like the character. I like his <laughs> story. I think it's It is it is a very good story. I think it's the best story in the entire show. And that's a huge reason why we chose him to uh, be the focus of our, our study tonight, uh, because we think that his, uh, his arc and his storyline most purely and most powerfully encapsulates the thesis of Game of Thrones, if there is one. Uh, and I think where we'll, we'll really a- arrive tonight is our analysis of what Game of Thrones is and what role it, it serves, at least as the show, from my perspective, as someone who hasn't read the books, at least what the show represents in the world it inhabits is the sort of uh, evolution or decay of tragedy, of classic tragedy. Uh, and some things we'll explore tonight are ideas of, uh, of the forces that govern classic tragedy from the ancient Greeks to Shakespeare. Uh, to Game of Thrones. To Game of Thrones. Can I ask a follow-up question to your thesis? Yeah. Um, follow-up question. When you say the decay of tragedy, do you mean that tragedy itself is decaying? or It's, it's an evolution of the form. Ah, I got yeah. you. And, and we'll explore that a little bit further tonight but it is a dying off of many of the, um, the, the most important uh, focal energies of the form of tragedy. Okay, so why not, since I just word vomited Stannis' entire history and uh, threw in a little history of Westeros, why don't you define the classic tragedy, and then, if that sounds cool, and then we'll use that, we'll compare it to, I would say, Stannis' death would probably where we should focus, and then uh, we'll do like historical textual analysis. Word. So cool. Classic tragedy. Classic tragedy. Hit me Let's with go. it. Hit me. Let's uh, all get classic and tragical. There's a really good um, little aphorism of uh, the difference between comedy and tragedy. Uh, tragedy ends in death, and comedy ends in marriage. Um, <laughs> And Game of Thrones ends in death and marriage. Um, sometimes marriages sometimes and deaths are the same. Death at marriage. Um, and, you know, you see that in any Shakespeare play. If you go and see a Shakespeare comedy, it ends with either one marriage or several marriages occurring on the stage at the same time. And if you go see a Shakespeare tragedy, everybody fucking dies on the stage at the same time, typically. Right. Um but I think a, a deeper analysis of what tragedy is throughout uh, throughout the history of the form is a, a real exercise in the insignificance of man in the face of greater natural or cosmic forces and the futility of fighting against those forces. And so, you know, a couple times tonight, I'll probably refer you back to another episode of ours where we discuss prophecy and fate 
which is a huge element of most classic tragedy. Um, and we, we discussed Oedipus and Macbeth very uh, deeply in that episode. Um, that's called Destiny's Child. If you haven't listened to it, check it out. Um, it's a scorcher. It's a scorcher. But one of the things that we really explore is how man really pales when it comes to these uh, huge, huge overarching themes of fate, which you can't escape even if you try, or you know the it, the order of the, the hierarchy of the universe determines where you are and where you stay, and if you move outside of that, you will destroy everything inside you and outside you, and it'll ripple through the cosmos. So tragedy really claims man's insignificance in the face of those things. And usually you'll see the downfall of a great man or someone at a high status. And that's the simplest definition of it is someone who is up great. high falls. Yeah. And Stannis was born in the Stormlands in a castle that's legitimately physically high um, and higher than others. One of the most powerful houses he rises to prominence. He holds Dragonstone. He claims himself king. And in the end, he dies in the mud, piss, blood, and dirt. Having lost everything, having hit rock bottom. Absolutely. Another great Midnight Myth episode. <laughs> you know, an interesting conversation formed when we were discussing before coming up here, um, what moral system does Stannis represent? And I do believe in Game of Thrones, a lot of the major characters represent some form of system of either law, morality, philosophy. And Stannis was tough because at first we thought, here's a guy um, who is deeply religious, but he's religious for a purpose. He's religious because he believes that the God that Melisandre worships will get him the throne. So his ambition and his religion are intertwined. There's a scene in season two where he's talking to his soon-to-be hand of the king, at this time just a high-ranking lord in his his army, uh, Davos, and he says, a, one good act does not wash out the bad, nor a bad the good, suggesting that you know moral actions happen within a consistent universe and that separate actions are to be judged separately within this. In that respect, it's very Immanuel Kant. Kant said, hey, how do we figure if something is right or wrong? He came up with this thing called the categorical imperative. The categor mm -hmm. categorical imperative means if I'm going to do something before I do it, if I want to find out if it's moral, I ask myself, what if everybody did this action? Mm -hmm. And if everybody did this action, what happens to this theoretical idea of the moral universe? Simple example, if I decide I'm going to kill my neighbor and take their gold, and I want to know, before I do that, is this morally okay? That's a tough one, yeah. I think, hey, what happened if everybody killed their neighbor and took their gold? Morality itself would cease to exist. The moral universe would be destroyed. Hence, killing your neighbor and taking their gold is immoral. Seems to make a lot of sense. The philosophy's been poked apart by lots of other philosophers. And it's also a difficult thought experiment to really imagine because if everybody kills their neighbor, who, you know, how do you... How do you it's not sustainable because if you've already killed your neighbor, then your neighbor's dead. They can't kill their neighbor and your neighbor's already killed you. Exactly. Falls the, apart. The, the moral universe unravels. And based upon that, we see a, a total decay of ideals, principles, and society. So Stannis suggests this in the scene that every act is independently judged on its own merits. And just because you did one thing at one part, it doesn't erase the effect it had on the, the moral universe. Then summarily in that scene, he suggests that Davos prepare to be a smuggler again because he wants to smuggle Melisandre onto, uh, into this, back into the Stormlands off of a ship, uh, what Davos doesn't know, but to assassinate Renly using a magical spell. Right. And he says, oh, I forget the exact words, but to the effect he says that sometimes wars need to be won by doing the unseemly and the immoral. Yeah. It's like, uh, oh, it, it's like clean, clean actions don't win wars. It's something like that. It's much more poetic than I'm giving it justice, but you're closer yeah. to it. So that on that other hand, he's actually saying what truly is right is that the ends justify the means. Mm 
Right. Right. It's not about the greater good. It's not about the moral universe. It's I have a goal. My goal is to be king. I need to be king because there's a prophecy that the long night can only be stopped by me. So everything I do in the service of this prophecy is good no matter what, even if I do something like assassinate my brother with an evil spell. Yeah. And that is in direct contradiction to the, the, um, you know, the saying that he, he spouted seconds earlier. And this is the tragedy of Stannis. Because he is such a heartless individual, he never comes from a set moral philosophy or standard. He is constantly letting himself being guided by mm-hmm. his own ambition to secure the throne yeah. and his own justification through a twisted religion that we get the sense as viewers, he doesn't really believe in this religion at all. No, sure. We get the sense he's not a religious man, but he's come to believe it because it fits in this. What I love about the character is that he didn't choose this life initially. He received a letter from Ned Stark saying, hey, Joffrey's a fucking bastard. The king's dead. You're king. And I choo-choo-choose you. And then he's just like, well, if I'm actually going to be king, then I'm going to be king. Yeah. Yeah, he's uh, and he's riddled with hypocrisies. And it was kind of infuriating to us as we were trying to nail down what he represented in this world of of characters who very clearly represent thoughts of, of morality um, and paths of thinking. Um, and it's occurring to me now, this this hypocrite, he's fucking Paul Ryan. There's a little bit of Paul Ryan in this guy. And uh, the Lord of, of Rolar is tax cuts for the wealthy and yep. less health care for the sick. Yeah. That's that's the the priest which he worships. As long as he gets there, it doesn't matter if he how he gets there or what he does. Yeah. Yeah, because Stannis is not Machiavellian, you know? No. You know, he's he doesn't pretend to be one thing to the public and another in private. Right. Like Littlefinger or Cersei. You know, like, he's not into playing the intricate game of politics. He's like, nope, I'm the king, I'm taking it, and if you disagree, you're dead. Mm-hmm. You know, like, so there is this this straight ends justify the means, whatever I need to do to satisfy my ambition. It's very material, there's no core root. He doesn't have the, the the fun of cynicism and optimism that you see in Tyrion. He doesn't have the humanism that Daenerys has, you know, but he has his cold, ruthless, heartless ambition that drives him. And um, that ambition leads him to make, I would think, one of the most tragic scenes in all of television. Yep. Um, where in the second to last episode of season five, Stannis' army is barricaded in by snow. There was a, a Ramsay Bolton snuck onto his camp, burned his horses, poisoned his food. And the only way forward, Melisandre says, is, hey, there's magic in King's blood. Now, we've seen Melisandre do some magic shit, so we know she has some powers. So Stannis is prompt and amped and ready to listen to her when she suggests we need to burn your daughter alive. And he makes the choice to burn the daughter alive. And here's the thing that is so deeply tragic. It works. The next day, the snows thaw. Piece of shit. He burns his daughter alive, but only to find that little less than half of his men have run off with the horses. His wife has hung herself as a direct result of him burning his daughter. Absolutely. You know, there's this great scene where they're bringing the daughter to the pyre. She's screaming, help me. She screams to her mother. And her mother, who is a fanatic, a true believer, who says to Stannis while this is happening, any deed done in service of our Lord can never be judged as bad. Yeah, it's, this is a good thing. Until her daughter cries out and she breaks and she begs Stannis to stop. And she runs towards, but is too late and cannot save her daughter from the flame. And you see the look of the soldiers and the horror in their faces as they hear the screams of this poor, innocent girl being burned alive, who's one of the few truly innocent characters in the show. Yeah. You know, and we see that occur. This becomes the parallel. Now, Stannis then marches his men towards Winterfell, He's ready to do a siege only to find out 
that the Ramses aren't going to sit behind their walls. They come out, they attack him, they lose. Stannis is now wounded in the battle, and Brienne of Tarth comes to see him, sentences him to die, and I think one of the best lines, when she sentences him to die, she says, do you have any last words? And his last words are, go on, do your duty. Mm. Fucking love it. Fucking baller way to go. And that's where we see. You think that's a baller way to go? Wrong adjective there. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's he, not a baller way in, to go in at the all. Last, in the last like couple of hours, he has lost everyone that he loves. He's lost his wife. He has lost his daughter at his own hands. And it led to the conditions that set up his, you know, pretty un, unglamorous death. Uh, you know, just spitting out blood in the forest and then getting his head chopped off or his body sliced in half by a woman, which is awesome. Um, I guess, you know, yeah, baller's nothing the worst left to live for. Yeah. Picked. Yeah. I would not, but I would I, not call that baller or noble at all. The, I'd call it stoic. Mm. I certainly would. I would say that in the end, the last semblance of a philosophical core in Stannis rings true that do your best in life. Try your hard to be virtuous. If you fail, you can, you're always just going to die and that's okay. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, Stannis believes in the prophecy in the respect that he believes he should be King for better or for worse. He wants to be King because he wants to be a good King. And in that, and what I mean by a good king, I don't think he was capable of being a good king. No. Seeing what we've seen of kings in Westeros, he doesn't strike me as the person that has the makeup of to be a good king that would be able to sow alliances and keep the lords happy right. and to be able to juggle the politics and finances. He's antisocial. He's wishy-washy on his actual imperatives. Yeah. He yeah. I don't would think he not have been a good politician. But I think he would have wanted to be a good king. Right. And in the same respect that he wanted to be fair to Davos. You know, I, and I think in the last moments when he's just like, you know what? The only thing left that I can do well, I can only do one thing well now, and that's die well. And that last moment I thought was beautiful, poetic, and I want to add another layer to it. Because mm -hmm. when Brienne of Tarth goes to kill uh, Stannis, She's abandoning her post, which is supposed to be saving Sansa. Right. There's an argument to be made that in this world, and perhaps in our world, the duty to vengeance, which is another way to say the duty to your own selfish whims and desires, will always trump your duty to your call to service. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah. Does it complicate that at all that that her uh, her duty to vengeance is still in service of her former master, Renly? I, I personally, I mean, that's a good point we could debate. Right. I personally don't feel that way because she has been charged with Catelyn Stark on a quest right. to bring and make sure her daughters are safe. She has the power to do that. Yeah. Stannis is dead either way. Right. You know, and the show highlights very, very clearly the uh, the pain of that abandonment and that that individual choice that Brienne makes, and and gives us the irony of the candle in the window. Because as soon as Brienne turns her back, Sansa's on, asking for help. Sansa finally lights that candle. Yeah, and it's just too late. Another tragedy. Another person that represents innocence in the show. Sansa at that time. Season six, it starts to change a little. Yeah. You know what's interesting about Sansa Total Bim Boomerang? As another character that represented innocence, impurity, survival, strength, yeah. the will to, to carry on, people only really started liking her when she started getting a little more Littlefinger. That's a little weird to me. I think that says something about us, that Sansa just hanging on in the face of all this fucking evil was yeah. not compelling to people. Yeah, I mean, I'm guilty. I didn't like her. I didn't like her I've as a kid. I've always loved the fact that, you know, no one got their dreams crushed more than her. Right. No one came to see. She believed in this 
this lie that all of these nobles were actually morally noble and romantic and uh, passionate and would always do the right thing. She came to believe that when she gets to the capital and realizes that it's a feminist viper, her entire worldview gets crushed while at the same time, her entire family structure gets crushed. Right. And she spent and she's the past under season, the thumb of Joffrey. Yeah. Joffrey and then Ramsay just being a plaything and a toy. Oh. And people are like, well, that's not interesting. She's weak. What? That's one of the strongest fucking characters in the whole show. Yeah, it's true. And yes, I like that she's finally starting to play the game of Thrones a little. Yeah, me like, too. I enjoy that that we see that evolution, but part of me is sad that not, not that it's happening. It's sad that that's what it took for people to be interested in her. That it was already so interesting to me. Total side rant. I agree. I agree. Total side rant. I think that says something about us and how we like to view women in in these things. It's but anyway, true. it's true. Um, back back to our man Stannis. So. Um, Stannis is the architect of his own demise. And there's a lot of other examples of that that happened that are, I think, and I suspect that George R.R. Martin knew and directly based Stannis off of. Yes. Uh, I'm going to highlight two very uh, specifically tonight. Two? Um, I'm going to kick some things off with a very literal and logical um, parallel myth that we can draw toward specifically the scenes of Ostanis that we're talking about most in depth tonight. And that first character is Agamemnon. Uh, if you've never heard of Agamemnon before. Watch the movie, Troy. Watch the movie. Tro- Has anybody ever said that ever? I just did. Watch the movie, I, Troy. I felt a little guilty. I kind of like that movie. Uh, or, you know, read the. Iliad. The Iliad. Yeah. Read um, the Iliad. That's what you should do. Or any of or the Oresteia or anything. There's yeah. a lot of, a lot of good plays out there. Agamemnon was a legendary Greek king. Um, one of the leaders of the Greeks, uh, leading up to and during the Trojan war. Uh, and he has uh, several cycles of plays, um, that are written that, that deal with him. Um, but the the path of of Agamemnon that I want to talk about tonight is the story of him and his daughter Iphigenia. Um, Iphigenia is one of my favorite characters from Greek mythology, um, not the least because I saw a really empowering feminist play about her that was written a couple um, like ten years ago. I would say that was really fucking awesome. Um, but if you if you don't know Iphigenia, she's the daughter of Agamemnon who um, was was sacrificed. Uh, and the story begins with... To the gods. To the gods. The story begins with Agamemnon uh, in charge of the Greek army headed towards Troy. And this all kicks off with, off with him uh, killing a stag. And the stag happens to be a stag that is sacred to the goddess Artemis, uh, who is the virgin goddess of the woods. And once he kills this stag, uh, Artemis demands... A sacrifice. Can I just pause real quick? Just to pepper in. House Baratheon's sigil, it's animal, the stag. What? Yeah. Just just wanted to throw that little extra detail in. Sorry for interrupting. It's good stuff. Uh, yeah, so he goes to see a, a seer, essentially, and finds out that Artemis is demanding a sacrifice to atone for killing this sacred animal to her. Uh, and the, the stakes here are that if he doesn't, sacrifice his eldest daughter Iphigenia then Artemis will halt the winds and will not allow them to reach Troy and fight for Greece so what you have here are these opposing ends of um of what Agamemnon can do he has the opportunity to uh sail forward and go and win the war and be the greatest hero of Greek mythology uh, and lose his daughter or he can save his daughter and stay here in the middle of the uh, middle of nowhere and not reach that glory. Uh, And he sacrifices his daughter. There are a few different versions of the story. Um, In some of them, she's saved and she actually, you know, moves on to this sort of paradise world. Um, But the major beats of that story are the sacrifice to the gods and Agamemnon's choice to do it. Even in the ones where she's saved, he does it. Uh, and it's, it's fucked up. Yeah. Uh, you know, a point 
to, to be raised of sort of a historical continuity. Most religions are based at some point in its history in blood sacrifice. The idea that through the spilling of blood, blood being life, you give life to the gods, the gods will give it back to you. You know, this is true in all of the ancient Greek religions, uh, ancient, um, you know, Judaism, ancient Christianity still has a component of it. It's ritualized and more symbolic in the taking of the the Eucharist. Eucharist, yeah. Yeah. So the idea of a God demanding a sacrifice for appeasement is actually fairly universal ancient religious phenomenon. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in so far as up to the start of the height of the Roman Republic, when it was building an empire, one of its major charges against one of its original enemies, Carthage, was that Carthage still engaged in human sacrifice. And there was debate since Carthage was burned to the ground, whether this was real or just Roman propaganda until they found all of the remains of the humans they sacrificed in Carthage. Yikes. You know, so this tradition of, Hey, and even in ancient, um, you know, in, in, in the Torah, in ancient Hebrew, you know, um, Isaac was charged to sacrifice his son, Abraham, or I'm sorry, Abraham was charged to sacrifice his son by God and goes to sacrifice his son. And God at the last minute says, Psych, playing, glad that you were going to do it. You proved your faith. Now you don't have to. Oh, my God. So there is actual a precedent for the idea of ritualistic sacrifice to which Agamemnon's story is based upon. And we can draw a direct line to ancient religions believing in sacrifice as the highest form of reverence and prayer to the gods, directly to Agamemnon, directly to Stannis' burning of Shireen. Right. We see this line, this current, and one thing that we haven't done a good enough job as a society, I think, kind of dealing with is our own bloody sordid history. And there's a lot of evidence, but in particular in our religious thinking, in our spiritual thinking that is rooted on this idea for asking the question, why? You know, you know, it's easy for us to sit there and say, well, Agamemnon, If that even happened, well, that was thousands of years ago. He's a savage. But why was this so prevalent everywhere? Why does it still carry on to today? What does that say about us? That I think the burning of Shireen scene brings that question to bear. Why does he do it? Why has anyone ever been willing to kill another human being to get what they want? Because that's ultimately what a blood sacrifice is. I want something from the gods. Right. I'm willing to kill this thing to get it from the gods because that's the most precious thing you could give, which is life. I'm willing to do that. Why is that some, a part of the human condition? And have we really grappled with that? And that's why I love Stannis' story because it holds that mirror right up to us. We are looking at the ugliness of the human soul and we are seeing it in Stannis and we have to confront it in the show and I think it's easy to just sit there and say, you know, he's a shithead and an asshole because he's a shithead and an asshole. Yeah. I think that's, but that's the easy reaction. I think what makes it so compelling to me is, you know, what is he saying? What is Stan is saying about me? Would I, could I burn someone alive to get what I want? And there's lots of ways, maybe not literally, but metaphorically, would I be willing to step on someone if that means I advance? Would you listeners, you know, and these are the questions that Game of Thrones brings up, and I think the character Stannis brings up. Yikes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Let me give you a a concrete historical example of exactly what I mean, if that's okay. It's a bit of a boomerang. Yeah. All right, so another reason I love Stannis is he reminds me of a historical, um, you know, Roman emperor named Constantine. Very quick, Rome is in decay. This dude named Diocletian comes around and says, it's too big for one emperor. I'm going to have it two emperors and each emperor will have a co-emperor. We're going to split the empire down the middle. Fucking brilliant idea and works perfectly until Diocletian gives up his power. Now it's who's going to be in charge. Rome is thrust into a civil war and a general from Britannia, modern day Britain named Constantine. He ends up showing some pretty awesome military gravitas. Now the rumor is that Constantine has a dream where he sees himself crowned emperor 
under the banners of Christianity. At the time, Christianity is A, illegal, B, unpopular, C, sparse. But he's like, you know what? I had this dream. No one knows if this actually happened or not. So he adopts the Christian iconography in his battles. He ends up conquering and becoming the sole Roman emperor. It wasn't a cross yet. It was something else. I forget what it was, but it was before Christianity used a cross as its symbol. Yeah. And based upon that, he becomes the emperor. He becomes the Lord of Westeros, of the seven kingdoms. And what does he do? He A, he decriminalizes Christianity, but he hedges his bets. He sacrifices to Jupiter. He sacrifices to Hercules yeah. and Augustus. Then on his deathbed, he converts to Christianity. That should change the world. And Constantine. Dur- and during his lifetime, we see the formations of the Catholic Church. Yeah. There are some amazing letters between Constantine and the original councils where they're trying to hammer out the details of what this new church, because now it's legal and it's forming an actual religion. It's getting out of the murky gray illegal cult that it was. And, you know, Constantine, you know, I, I'm horribly summarizing, says things like, you know, this guy gave me the Roman empire. You better not fuck this up. You have to get this church right. Cause we're not going to anger this God because I am now the emperor of Rome because of him. You know, and I see a lot of if Stannis were to have been successful and have brought the Lord of Light as the religion, which is a fringe cult religion in the Westeros world, it's monotheistic. The, you know, Westeros is, you know, um, polytheistic. I see a lot of parallels there to that life, except Constantine's ambition ultimately gets him the throne he is now legitimately, he is St. Constantine. He's been canonized by Catholicism. Now, I don't say any of this to poke holes in religion or Catholicism at all, but I say it because I think Stannis's character resonates so well in both our stories and in our history. There have been so many Stannis Baratheons. Um, yeah. And I think they just nailed it. Yeah, uh, I think so too. Um, and to to sort of move on from Agamemnon, who I think uh, I think beats line up so, so incredibly well with Stannis that it's hard to ignore. And I'm in no way the first person to bring this up. Uh, you know, we have, especially with the Iphigenia story, we have Stannis, you know, blocked in, unable to move his army, unable to march on Winterfell and take back what, uh, you know, what he believes to be his. We have uh, someone who is channeling the gods. We have a murder of a stag in the past in Renly, uh, if you consider Renly to be the stag. And then we have the gods instructing Stannis to make the sacrifice of his daughter. The the beats line up so perfectly, it's almost impossible to imagine that Martin wasn't intending this in the oh. writing of the um, of this narrative. One other quick point to just em- to emphasize that. Yeah. So in the, the show... Um, Stannis realizes that Sir Davos will never go along with it, so he sends him away. Yeah. What does Stannis do? He gives Shireen a stag. Yeah. As almost or, uh, Davos does. Yeah. Davos gives a, Shireen a carved stag that she's holding on her way to being burned, as if here is the stag that's going to die. Yeah. At, so lining up symbolically with Agamemnon. Mm. It's such a sad, such a sad scene because she's such a lovely and inspiring character too, who I wanted to see do more in the show. Sad. Um, Pour one out for Shireen. Absolutely. Um, But I want to move on a little bit to, uh, I I think a more philosophical equivalent to Stannis. And it's almost, it's almost too obvious where I'm going next. Um, And that's to Macbeth, uh, who I think the second you, you really take in Stannis's narrative and his arc you're 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 missing something if you don't think of Macbeth. Um and one of the big one of the big red flags, if you will, is Melisandre, um, who bears a lot of comparison to not only Lady Macbeth, who I think is an easy comparison as well, but to the witches who Macbeth encounters on his uh on his journey and in his in his battles. Uh, and if you want a little summary of Macbeth, I won't go in too much to it now because back in Destiny's Child, we we did a huge summary of Macbeth. 
Um, we talked a little bit about the the tragic form and how um, Macbeth's downfall is. Oh my God, I was about to say architected, but like like Ivanka um, is designed by Macbeth himself, architected. Uh, I'm going to architect this. I think really the storyteller just needs to find a way to architect themselves better and more in modern society from the disadvantages of their architecting. Wow, what a feminist. Um, anyway. Uh, Should we, we may have to cut that out. I, I don't know if our listeners are going to get that. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Anyway, I enjoyed it. So Stannis and Macbeth. Um, so we meet Melisandre and we, we find out that she is kind of the... She's sort of the demon who is whispering in Stannis's ear. And I think um, I want to avoid, I want to avoid calling her the, the reason that he does the awful things that he does, because she's not. Uh, and I think Agreed. it would be, I think it would be wrong to make that assumption. She just makes it easier for him. Right. Um, but one of the things about Macbeth that is a, a huge burning question about that play and about that character is what is the role of prophecy? What is the role of fate uh, in determining how this uh, this story turns out? And what is the role of Macbeth's own choices? Uh, and so we have the uh, the personification of fate in the witches who he comes upon in a clearing who tell him, "Yeah, you're going to be you're going to get a promotion and you're going to be king." Uh, and then he tells his wife about it, and they decide to kill the king while he's staying in their house because it lines up with this prophecy that they heard. Uh, and the the acts become more and more brutal as this goes on, as he hears more prophecies about how he's going to ascend. And he, he takes the most decisive and most unnatural action that you can imagine to achieve those ends without, without the specific instruction. Um, and so the, the, the question that, and the beauty of Shakespeare and, and Shakespearean tragedy is that there are a million ways to read each play, and there are are scholars on Shakespeare who will claim that there is are rights and wrongs. But I think one of the magical things about it is that you can put up Macbeth and and have this one thesis on it, and you can put up Macbeth and have another thesis on it. But I think a huge ambiguous point of that is where does Macbeth fall uh, in the in the spectrum of choice and is most of his actions spurred by the witches is most of his actions spurred by the ambitions of his wife, or do we actually put the responsibility and the blame on the person who is carrying out these acts? And I think Stannis is the next level of that. So we get the sense that he is influenced heavily, heavily, heavily by the, um, the words of Melisandre who is interpreting the words of the Lord of light. Uh, and these prophecies and these instructions that are coming to him are the direct instruction that he takes to achieve these ends. But on another person, on another type of person, we'd see different. We'd see a different end. If Melisandre found Daenerys first, do you think we would have had the same outcome? That's yeah. something I wonder. Yeah, just imagine counterfactually. Melisandre goes to Daenerys, listen, the only way this is going to work is if you let your dragon eat Tyrion. Daenerys will go, well, Tyrion is my trusted advisor. My dragons aren't eating him. If you suggest that again, you will never talk to me again. Right. Because at the core, Daenerys has a humanistic philosophy. She believes in a social contract and that the people that own property are only own it because they have a duty to serve those that don't. Right. She believes in a governmental philosophy of rulership by promoting basic human principles, that humans are basically fundamentally good, and it is the circumstances that make them bad. Stannis has no philosophy. Right. Because A, he's not a philosopher. B, he's never ever had to think about this. He's always been the second fiddle to Robert. When he gets his one opportunity to be the main fiddle, he fucks it all up. Right. And I think you're right. He answers the question of Macbeth. It is his choices and his choices alone. And he knows that. That's why. Go on. Do your duty. And and here, I think, is the, 
is the perfect example of why why I believe that Game of Thrones takes the tragic form and evolves it and shows the shows the ugly underbelly of it. Um, I think what we see with Game of Thrones and what we see with Stannis especially is that tragedy and and the insignificance of man and the futility of fighting that that cycle is not because we're at the hands of some great forces that determine our destinies and determine the way that things turn out um, and what obstacles come before us, but we are truly responsible for our own actions and the results of our actions uh, might be our downfall. We're, we're not we're not being manipulated by cosmic forces. So, yeah, and it's not that those cosmic forces in Game of Thrones aren't present. They are. They are. They're there. The Lord of Light gives power to Melisandre. The White Walkers are coming. There are dragons. There are dragons. But that can burn armies to the ground. Yeah. The cosmic forces are there, but those are not the main drivers of the behaviors of Stannis. Yeah. Or any of the characters I'd submit. And let's look at um, at just the moment of, you know, he, he sacrifices Shireen. The next morning, the ice is thawing, but half the company is left. And Melisandre has abandoned them. So, yes, okay, we got the result that the Lord promised us, but it's more or less insignificant. It doesn't matter that that happened because the choice that Stannis made, while it appealed to the gods, doomed him to man. Right. Right. Yeah. Totally right. Yeah. So I, th- I think a, a, a thing that we can reflect on here is the way that Game of Thrones, the way that George R.R. R. Martin and the showrunners uh, take that tragic form and, and give it responsibility. Yeah. We were saying before we started recording that Game of Thrones is like tragedy that meeting existentialism. Yeah. It's like it's Shakespeare mm. meets... Jean-Paul Sartre. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, well, Midnight Myth listeners, tell us what you think. Do you like our case study in Stannis? We could certainly pick other characters in Game of Thrones and do case studies on them. Um, do you think he's a piece of shit? Well, he is. <laughs> yeah, right? he is. But he's also a really, really amazing, um, amazing point of focus to analyze. I think... That he, that I agree with you that his story arc is one of the most interesting, if not the most interesting, um, especially because we can zoom out from it because it's complete. Right. Uh, and we can really zoom out and see. Because I know that Tyrion, uh, Daenerys, and Jon Snow are the darlings, mm-hmm. you know, and they're always going to be the darlings. They were written to be the darlings. But to me, the characters like Stannis are what make the show so alive, so vibrant. Uh, so much going on that I can go and I can look into and I can extrapolate. You know, I was probably one of the few individuals who are a diehard Game of Thrones fan that would say from day one, Stannis, that's my boy. I love that story. I want to see where it's going. He's the most interesting to me where most people just wanted to root against him. I wanted to see where this arc was going to go. And in the shows, it did not disappoint at all. I thought it had such a fitting end in a show where so so much of the violence is random, chaotic, and unjust. Yeah. It was so cathartic to see his end, a just end to a horrible chapter in a failed human. And yeah, oh God, that that's beautiful. Uh, and even I, who will sit here and harp on what a piece of shit he is, I think this is also a testament to the actor, but his final moments and the true tragedy that you see in his eyes and in his face and that, you know, sustained moment of taking his last breath before saying, go on, do your duty. You see everything that he's lost and you see all of his regrets. And yet that stoicism that he won't, he won't apologize. He's not going to say, I regret everything. He's just going to say, it's over. I'm going to die. I'll let you have this one. Absolutely. Uh, I I do, I am a little disappointed that uh, unlike in Macbeth, uh, we don't see Brienne, sl- uh, you know, slash his head off and then carry his head and be like, hail. For whatever reason, they decided <laughs> to edit out his actual yeah. being iced with the sword scene. 
All right, let's uh, move on to the game. Let's play a game. Laurel, do your thing. Okay. Every week here on the Midnight Myth Podcast, we uh, love to play a little game to have a little fun with the characters and situations we've been talking about. Uh, and we would love to hear from you. We'd love your responses. So please tweet us your answers to this at the Midnight Myth on Twitter or uh, hit us up on Facebook, the Midnight Myth Podcast, or drop us a line on the website. It's www.midnightmyth.com. We'd love to hear anything you have to say, a response to the game, or any feedback or anything that you would love to hear. So, And in particular, if you like the case study, we can do more. Uh, we have some ideas for some other case studies of Game of Thrones, so give us your ideas, uh, Game of Thrones fans who are also Midnight Myth fans. Yeah. All right. You want to say what the game is, or do you want me to do it? I don't remember what the game is. Well done. Yeah. I totally forget. What was the game? You don't remember it? We I don't. We just talked about it. <laughs> I know we did. I know we did. Uh, but I totally forgot. So in Game of Thrones, uh, as you know, everybody has a sigil. All the houses have uh, banners that they march with. Um, and often they're animals or they're images. Um, so I would love to know what everybody's sigil is or what everybody's banner is oh, when you right. march into battle what flag are you flying what's the image on it what is the the symbol of your house and uh you can't pick one that already exists in game of thrones right so i can't say a wolf because there's already one i can't say a kraken because that's already a thing right <clears throat> all well, right you want to go first sure i'll go first um okay i'm still working through this one but i think i like it so my my sigil there's a little bit of a story um, that I want to impart to our listeners uh, that that precedes this, uh, and that's uh, the like medieval Welsh poem uh, myth of Gwyan and Caridwen. Um, so Gwyan was a little boy who uh, later grew up to be the poet Taliesin, the bard Taliesin, who is also like a friend of King Arthur's. There's a whole bunch of stuff about it. He's He's super interesting, but he was a little mischievous boy who was like the, the servant of Caridwen, who is this like mother goddess figure, sort of also a demon woman. And he was stirring her cauldron uh, and he tasted some of the drops and he got some of the drops out of there and she was really pissed off at him. So she chases him around um, everywhere and he's got some of the magic from her cauldron. So he keeps turning into animals and then she turns into that animal's predator and follows him, and this little cat and mouse game literally goes on for ages, and then he turns himself into a little seed, and then she turns herself into a chicken, and then she eats him, and then she gets pregnant, and then she gives birth to him. I, you've lost me so hard there. <laughs> I know. I uh, so probably we're talking about this. sigils? <laughs> no, we don't need to cut it. But. but anyway, I wanted my sigil to be her cauldron. Oh. As like a like powerful mother goddess kind of thing, and like right on, I will eat you if you fuck with me, and like sort of a, a shapeshifter kind of thing going on. Mother goddess, demon woman, don't love mess it. with me. Love it, love it. It's great. Yeah, brothers, sisters in arms. We don't serve lords. We don't serve gods. We don't serve God. We don't serve man. We are rational. Logical, thinking humans, my banners will be Sigmund Freud. Uh. We will march towards the rational, the material, the understandable under the banners of Freud. So it's a, it's a penis? No, it's just Freud. A penis? Uh, Freud does not equal or mean penis. It would be a picture of Sigmund Freud, not a penis. I hope you're proud of that answer. I am. Midnight Myth listeners, let us know what you think of Derek's answer. Yeah, I understand <laughs> that uh, you don't uh, don't like that answer. I don't subscribe. These are my banners. It's true. And I am picking my intellectual hero, which is Sigmund Freud. Ooh, okay. Yeah, you know, I understand that people don't like him because the idea of psychosexual development is sounds revolting to them. Um, and I understand that he was living in a very different time than our time and his values are different than our values. He's still my intellectual hero. Word. Well, dude, I, 
always love to hear your uh, your analysis on this, so I look forward to our discourse in the future on, on Freud. Uh, but friends, that's our game. That's our show. We would love to hear from you as always, so please hit us up on social media. Let us know what you think, and... Be kind. Be kind. <laughs>